Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Smith. In this episode, Aspie's Michael Shoebridge talks to Emeritus Professor Paul Dibb of the ANU about the strategic implications of COVID for Russia. And we hear from Aspie's Dr. Malcolm Davis and Charlie Lyon-Jones about COVID-19's impact on the space industry. But first, Aspie's Genevieve Feely speaks to Dr. Sue Harris-Rimmer, gender policy expert and associate professor at Griffith University, about the Afghanistan peace process and why it's so important that women are represented and their rights protected in any agreement that is made. Morning all, my name is Genevieve Feely. I am a researcher with the International Program here at Aspie and today we have Dr. Susan Harris-Rimmer from Griffith University here to talk about the recent negotiations which have just stalled between the government of Afghanistan and the Taliban. These are also being called the intra-Afghan negotiations. Um, Listeners may remember that in late February an historic deal was signed between the Taliban and the United States, though the government of Afghanistan was not involved there. This round of intra-Afghan negotiations was seen as the next crucial step along the road to peace. Now, Sue, I thought I'd get you to give a quick overview of the context of these talks and also why they've broken down before we move on to what I think is really one of the biggest issues here, the representation of women during these many rounds of peace negotiations. Sure. So uh, the government of Afghanistan's in a very difficult position in these talks because they thoroughly objected to the US agreement with the Taliban to start with. And there's also a leadership struggle between Ashraf Ghani and Abdullah Abdullah over the uh, presidential elections. So it is a a complicated time and there are some really key difficulties in the negotiations at the moment, which are are really even talks about talks at present around the release of prisoners and also about the kind of power sharing arrangements that the Taliban might have in government areas, in Kabul in particular. So it's on a knife edge and in the middle of this comes the COVID-19 crisis, which in Afghanistan is looking absolutely tragic and terrible due to unchecked flows of Afghans from Iran. So it's a complicated time in which to undergo a negotiation. On every level, it seems almost impossible at the moment. So one of the biggest issues to come out of the US-Taliban negotiations really was the fact no women participated. And women, I understand, are still quite poorly represented during the intra-Afghan talks. Are there any women participating in the latest rounds of talks? My understanding was that there were uh, two uh, women, including the Deputy Speaker of Parliament, um, who has been very vocal about her participation. So that's where most of our information is coming from about what's happening um, in those talks. So, for example, she is is seeking uh, gender guarantees that her rights would not be infringed. And so we are getting a little bit of detail and it's it's important to have those very brave women at that table, but it's it's a tiny percentage of the overall talks and it's completely upon those very few women to try to make the case for half the population. It's not ideal uh, and it's uh, at the moment uh, it's really bolstered by the fact that the Afghan parliament has a quota system for parliamentary seats. So you, you, there's this idea that the, the Afghan parliament, which is slightly more representative, has a, a bigger role in this round of talks. Uh, But as I say, with the leadership struggles at the top and the very difficult position of the US, these talks are in a very difficult stage. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't really heard about the fact that Parliament was more involved in this round and what that meant for the representation of women. Do you think that there are particular risks that parties run when women aren't involved in these peace negotiations and what effect it will have on the end result? Yeah, well, we know this, this is something we do know. So we know that women's participation in peace talks 
will improve outcomes before, during and after the conflict. So there is extensive research now that says participation of women, but particularly women's organisation, makes a peace agreement 64% less likely to fail. We know that the resulting agreement when women are involved is 35% more likely to last an extra 15 years. And in a country like Afghanistan that's been in a cycle of violence, then that's, you know, that's particularly important. We know that higher levels of gender equality are associated with a lower propensity for conflict between and within states. So we know, we also know that um, having women involved in the in the um, discussion has access to population and venues which are close to men. So in those non-government controlled areas of Afghanistan, there's still a lot we don't know about women's lives under the Taliban controlled areas uh, and what they think are their crucial issues for the peace process. So we know all of that, but and yet we know that women's um, participation in peace processes around the world has been absolutely parlous, uh, you know, really shocking for 2020. 3% of mediators, 4% of signatories, 13% of negotiators over the last 20 years, zero female signatories. Most peace agreements don't even reference women at all, or if they do, it's to give amnesties to gender-based violence. It's a... One of those classic situations where all the evidence faces one way and all the practice faces the other direction and that's why we have such difficult cyclical conflict situations in the world as the World Bank and many others have, have explained. And it's no different for Afghanistan. We know that the systematic segregation of women in Afghanistan has led to gendered insecurity and in particular family violence as well as uh, political or, or um, terrorist violence. Does this stall um, in the negotiations actually present an opportunity for women to be better included in future processes? Or do you think that either side will be so fixated on getting back to the table that the table still fails to be representative? So there is time pressure that's been given by the US withdrawal uh, in the agreement with the Taliban that did not include the Afghan government, which is putting some time pressure around these things. But the stall, I think, does often offer an opportunity to at least listen to women in all their diversity about what they might want. So it gives us more time to do that crucial work where uh, women are asked what they want to see in a peace agreement. And there has been some of that uh, occurring. So we know that 15,000 women from 34 provinces have been consulted on what would be acceptable to them in a peace agreement. But we don't know exactly the number and who have been selected to participate in the intra-Afghan talks and at what level. But we, I believe that because there is a reasonably high representation of women in the parliament um, due to the quota system there, that there will be more women involved. And there have been a series of shadow, ta- shadow roundtables of women brought together to uh, discuss their role in the peace process. And do you think that there are some more creative ways for women's voices to be heard during this peace process? I do. Uh, one of the more creative ways is the shadow shadow kind of peace talks. So there is no excuse for not knowing what women in all their diversity want out of these talks because they can be asked. Uh, there can be many processes that at least come up with some sort of positions and points and red lines that are acceptable to women and that they will be very varied depending on the types of experience women have had in the the current conflict. Uh, But there's also donor conditionality and this is what I think is going to be the bottom line. Afghan is a 
large recipient of international aid, very large, and cannot survive without that aid at the moment. The US has threatened to cut a billion dollars of its $4.5 billion aid program this year due to um, presidential fallout from the elections. So they have shown themselves willing to use a level of conditionality when it comes to their aid spend. It's going to be very important for international donors to be extremely clear that their support of Afghanistan, no matter what power-sharing arrangement happens with the Taliban, is going to be dependent on the protection and promotion of women's rights and their ability to participate in public life, particularly around the education of girls. If there is not that extremely clear conditionality on international aid, then we're going to have a problem. Uh, so it's, I think it's about now the responsibility lies with the international community to be crystal clear what their support will, uh, what is the cost of their support and what sorts of human rights conditionality lies underneath it. Yeah, and I think that's a really, really key point. Now, just maybe as a final question, coronavirus and its consequences and how it'll unfold around the world is still very unclear. But can you talk at all how it may affect or change this peace process at all? I think it will overwhelm the government of Afghanistan in particular. I can't see how the Taliban themselves won't be affected either. I think I think it's going to be a really terrible and tragic impact on Afghan life. So we know that at the moment the Afghan Public Health Ministry is saying about 25.6 million Afghans are likely to be infected with the COVID-19 virus. They are projecting that 110,000 Afghans will die. We know in the context of the Afghan health sector that it could so easily be overwhelmed. If you're thinking about very advanced health systems like Italy being overwhelmed, you can imagine what the Afghan health sector is. It's just going to be extremely difficult for them to cope. You're already seeing that in Western Herat province, which is sort of the epicentre of the current virus. And we know that there was this terrible, heartbreaking delay on returns of Afghans from Iran over the border who were not separated and who were not quarantined. And we know what's happening in Iran. So I think it is only a matter of time before life as usual in Afghanistan is, if whatever that is, is, is deeply interrupted. So I feel like as important as the peace process is, it, like everything else in the world, has got to give way to the management of this pandemic. We know that the pandemic has gendered consequences. We know that home for Afghan women is not safe for so many Afghan women. So that is something that's been exercising my mind. Um, we know prisons are not safe, so that adds an interesting level to the Taliban peace talks because the prisons will be very dangerous places to be in terms of the pandemic. We know a lot of Afghans are still in refugee camps. Everything about this virus is amplified when it comes to the, um, I suppose, potential to wreak havoc in a a conflict-affected state like Afghanistan. Mm. Thanks so much for coming on today and shining a light on these negotiations. I think it's really important to continue highlighting these issues as issues of representation persist no matter what, but you make a really excellent point that for now as well, we're going to start seeing some really tragic stuff coming out of Afghanistan. And that really hasn't been a focus in the media right now. No, well, I think it won't be the only conflict-affected place. I, I'm a, I also work on Myanmar and there's terrible things, you know, the share of border with China. And I think one of the things that's really difficult about these places is they don't have the data and the ability to track the cases in the same way. So you never really know what you're dealing with. 
So, uh, yeah, but I, I expect it to be quite bad and the Afghan Public Health Ministry expects it to be quite bad and I feel like it will derail a lot of the current peace efforts. But as I say, given the state that they're in at the moment, maybe that's a good thing. Next up, Michael Shoebridge talked to Emeritus Professor Paul Dibb about the implications of COVID-19 for Russia, Putin and Russia's relationship with China. Professor Paul Dibb, it's my pleasure to uh, welcome you to this ASPE podcast and to talk about uh, Russia and uh, the dynamics affecting Moscow, Vladimir Putin and the Russia-China relationship. So let's just uh, cast our minds back to just a few months ago. Um, Russia was riding high with its global influence after its remarkable interventions in Syria and the broader Middle East in contrast to what was seen as U.S. weakness and vacillation there. But it had some real headwinds with the oil price war between Russia and Saudi Arabia, um, with a big economic impact on, on Russia. And then there was the move to change the Russian constitution, which would have had the effect of allowing Putin to have two more presidential terms from when his current one expires in 2024. Well, that was then, and this is now. Now the regime is struggling with COVID-19 like the rest of the world, and that's got some implications for Putin's rule. It's had some immediate implications for the constitutional change, but it's also putting some ripples into the Russia-China relationship. How, how do you see things um, with your Moscow goggles on, Paul? Look, I think ever since the Western sanctions as a punishment for Russia's occupation of Crimea and uh, eastern Ukraine, the Russian economy has been struggling. Uh, certainly when I was there three years ago, the price of local foods and so on were astronomical and a lot of people were complaining. Since then, as you say, we've got to remember that Russia really only has two exports, oil and natural gas and military equipment. And the oil situation, as you say, the oil price war with Saudi Arabia, my information is that Russia really needs for its budget to be credible and sustainable, including for its military, it needs mm. to be about 40 to 45 US dollars a barrel. And mm. you and I know now it's below 30. So that is a serious problem. On the positive side, even so, we need to recognize that Russia has the fourth largest foreign exchange reserves in the world, and it's currently running at something like $450 billion US, which, mm -hmm. with an economy allegedly the same size as ours, is 10 times our foreign reserves. Having said all that, the last time Russians went through a prolonged period of stagnation, as distinct from collapse after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Many Russians will remember it was in the latter years of the Brezhnev period, period when it was called the period of stagnation. And Putin would remember then that after 14 or 15 years in power, when Brezhnev died, there were successive of unstable rulers, uh, Chernyenka mm. uh, and others. And so I'm, I'm remembering Putin's election campaign speeches uh, for his last election to his current term as president. He... I was quite frank about the economic difficulty 
and about the underinvestment in the health system and village health centres, the road system and the education system. But he was telling his people, stay with me, be patient. I'm making Russia strong. Look at what I'm doing with the military. Look at my military uh, technological development, including nuclear-tipped drone torpedoes. Yeah. Uh, so I will bring you economic strength and a strong health system. Well, that doesn't look like it's happening from here. And as you say, hanging over the country, as for the rest of us, is this unknown, maybe tectonic impact on the Russian economy of this coronavirus. And let me just read out um, for your listeners um, an email I've just got in from a, a old contact of mine who was formerly a KGB resident in a certain country. And he did this sentence this morning. He says, the economic consequences of the pandemic could be disastrous for Russia with its weak private sector and its huge bureaucracy. Now, there's an interesting statement. Mm. Mm. Well, it says, you know, our debate in Australia is um, about how quickly we can get the private sector back to work uh, when we are able to manage the virus. But I think the point that your KGB contact, a former KGB contact is making is there's just not that big a private sector there. So entering even more debt uh, is going to diminish those foreign reserves rapidly and and really affect uh, the Russian economic strength into the future in a way beyond what we're probably going to experience. And that brings us back, as you know, to this statement that Putin's made recently in his move to alter the constitution, which initially looked like securing him a post as chairman of the National Security Council, but now his cards are clearly on the table before this coronavirus, that he thinks, and he stressed this end times in his recent speech, that it is crucial he'd come to the view, crucial to have a prolonged period of leadership stability. We do not need to go back to the uncertainties of um, the collapse of the Soviet Union. And, of course, now he's been in power 20, 20 years. If he gets, which he will, his extension to 2024, that'll be 24 years. And uh, let's be very sort of um, uh, provocative now and say the person he wants to outrun is not somebody like Brezhnev, because uh, he's already outrun him. It is the longest-serving leader of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, um, Joseph Stalin, who was in power for 29 years. And Putin's extension beyond 2024 will enable him to outrun that. And let's not pretend that that isn't important to him. I think he's, you know, this is a man who came from nowhere as a lieutenant colonel in the KGB in the former East Germany and was tapped on the shoulder by that uh, pathetic interim leader of Russia, Yeltsin. Yeltsin, And that's what, you know, rocketing to stardom. And now he's unchallenged. If he presides over a stagnating Russia rather than a resurgent Russia, as he's promised his people, he starts to look not like Stalin, but more like Brezhnev. Yeah, and if he's really cornered, let's just sort of speculate that this, um, the impact of this coronavirus on an already weakened and vulnerable Russian economy because of its dependence on oil, what if it really hits Russia and he can't deliver what he's promised? And as you said so rightly, Michael, that the, the people's standard of living in the last five years under sanctions 
has not increased and indeed arguably has decreased. And we've got out, once you travel outside of Moscow, uh, you find, you know, 19th century peasant Russia. And Ooh. as you say, poor health services, poor everything. Now, under those conditions, a man who is highly suspicious of the outside world and not least the West, and who believes and who repeats that the West is out to destroy Russia. I mean, his chief, his, his defense minister, um, uh, Shoigu, um, uh, has said, the aim of the West is to destroy Russia and enslave us. Now, you and I can laugh at that and say, how ridiculous. So, you know, knowing that Putin actually thinks like this and the demonstration effect of the West's plot uh, yep. to overthrow him was, you, was, was your, the, the sunflower re revolution. With your um, intelligence and policy background, though, Paul, um, you wouldn't be laughing uh, to think that that is the actual perspective um, in the Kremlin. It's, not at all. Not Take it seriously. Remember, remember there is not a, shoes. Yeah, and remember there's not a Politburo of eight or nine mm -hmm. people. There's just him. He's the czar of all the Russias. And I guess the conclusion I was coming to ask us, ourselves was, under those conditions, speculative as they are, but not incredible, when would he be tempted to strike out? Mm. To play the, the nationalism card and use that tool that he has, which is yes. incredibly strong, which is the Russian military machine. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. he does play that. I mean, it's not hard to play the nationalist card in Russia, of all countries that I know. And, you know, for instance, with Crimea, the Russians invented a sort of statement when he sent the little green men and women in to uh, take it back. Um, Nash Krim, our Crimea, which Putin has described as sacred Russian territory. Mm. Yes. Now, Paul, I wanted to talk about the Russia-China relationship. So you've written a very compelling analysis for ASPE uh, late last year about the strategic partnership. And yeah. you talked in that about uh, the fact that they've become incredibly close but you did raise prospects that some seams could be driven in that partnership. Mm. Uh, I think part of your reasoning was a civilizational one. Yes, and to recognize these are two, China and Russia, gigantic old civilizations. China, as we've repeatedly told, 5,000 years. The Russians relatively new on European standards, only a 1,000 years. Hmm. I mean, compare our own history. And they are very different civilizations. Everybody knows about the central kingdom, the mandate under heaven of China. What people don't understand is a Russia that has created a vision for itself that has always produced strong dictatorial leaders, the succession of czars, the nobility, and the Communist Party, and now a new czar. And they go back all the time as Putin does and his defense minister does. The outsiders are going to get us. Russia's sense of its history, which, you know, we in the West have no uh, experience of, and of, of course they, ex they exaggerate it, is just as the flower of our civilization was developing a thousand years ago, we were getting Christianity. What happened? Genghis Khan horde occupied us for 250 years. Mm. And then you had successive waves later on of invasion by the Poles, who put a false czar in Moscow, um, the Swedes in the 1700s, 
Napoleon in the early 1800s, and of course, most of all, uh, the Nazi German army. So, mm. you know, they can play this history of mm. being threatened and downtrodden uh, yes. like a violin. And unlike yeah. us, both countries are continental countries, China and Russia. They both have land borders. Russia certainly experienced, as I've just said, lots of invasions. But the Chinese would say so too. They were occupied by Genghis Khan and by the Manchus and people who were not central Chinese. And they're very secure countries in their their nuclear sort of uh, capabilities. And so it's a culture in which they're now, both of them, developing capacities to operate decisively in their neighborhoods. Mm. And their neighborhoods include a border. I was just hearing um, Chinese government spokespeople saying now that they have COVID-19 under control, which I don't think they do, uh, their their main concern is about a second wave of infection being brought to them by foreigners crossing their borders. Yes. And one of those borders is the Russian and Chinese border. Which I just a- wonder how that narrative will go down in Moscow because – it's an inconvenient fact in this narrative that this pandemic originated in Wuhan, China. Yeah, and look, um, in that piece I wrote for Aspie, whilst I'm strongly of the view that the two leaders get on enormously and that both countries need each other to take on what they see as an ambitious and threatening West. The fact is, the history of the relationship, even at the height of the Soviet Chinese alliance uh, in the 1950s and early 60s, which both sides, by the way, described as the lips and the teeth. They were that close. But in the end, the teeth bit off the lips when the the Russians were disenchanted with uh, Mao Zedong's need to acquire nuclear weapons, which sure as hell the Russians did not supply. You know, they had a border war in 1968, and I was in Siberia when that happened. And that, and, that, and that was a divisional-sized conflict. And after that, the Russians approached uh, the then-American administration to see how America would react if they, the Soviets used a nuclear weapon against China. So, you know, these undercurrents are well-known yes. in, yes. in, in, the, in the collective memories of both of them. And, and Mao, out, of course, um, was corrosively critical of the Soviets criticizing Stalin after his death. Exactly. And here we have a 4,000-kilometer border, which, again, we have no concept of. And the Russians, by the way, early on in the piece, before the recent statements by the Chinese you've quoted, early on in the piece, the Russians closed the 4,000-kilometer border with China in reaction to the potential threat from the coronavirus. And we've had reports about two, three weeks ago out of Moscow with the Chinese ambassador writing to the Kremlin uh, and complaining that the Moscow um, city authorities running their underground railway system, buses and trams, were discriminating against people of Chinese appearance, including, by the way, arresting some people who are actually Taiwanese. Um, And the, the response from the Kremlin, by the way, to the ambassador was, that's none of our business. We are the Kremlin. The city authority runs Moscow. <laughs> so look, there are these undercurrents, which um, one of our great experts, Kyle Wilson, who you know, uh, you know, the leading Russian expert, in my view, in our country, says, for the time being, these things are put to one side. But your point, Michael, is this coronavirus could well be 
the uh, straw that breaks the camel's back of an unusual alliance. Exactly, and it's, it's a very large straw. So, Paul, thanks very much for your time today. I think it would be great to talk again as, as these events unfold and to draw on your incredibly deep subject matter knowledge. Uh, but thanks again for talking with us today. My pleasure as usual, Nigel. In our final segment, Charlie Lyons-Jones speaks to Dr. Malcolm Davis about how COVID-19 is impacting the space industry, how space is the new arena for strategic competition, and how space has enabled effective connectivity to deal with a workforce working remotely. I thought, Malcolm, we might just uh, start by having a broad discussion about what uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, what sort of impact that might have on the uh, uh, commercial space sector, both in Australia and around the world? Oh, thanks, Charlie. Look, I think it's having a mixed impact in in many respects. Uh, You're seeing, for example, in the US, uh, NASA has stood down a lot of its workforce, not sacked them, but essentially made them go on leave indefinitely. Because as you can imagine, assembling a satellite or assembling a spacecraft requires humans working closely together, close proximity. And so some of the things that need to be done for achieving things in space, whether it's putting together NASA's space launch system heavy booster or developing a new space probe to go out to Mars or Jupiter, can't be done at the moment. And so you're seeing a slowdown in certain areas in terms of projects that require close human interaction. On the other hand, you are seeing commercial companies, particularly small startups, uh, that can utilise advanced fourth industrial revolution technologies, including 3D printing and synthetic design, able to surge ahead because their approach to developing space capabilities and design of new types of systems doesn't require close human interaction so much as traditional old type technologies. So uh, I think that what you're seeing is that space companies in the commercial sector, particularly smaller companies, some of them are more agile and more responsive to this and they're doing better than large um, state-run space programs like NASA or the European Space Agency and so forth. In Australia's um, situation, I think that we're seeing a similar story. Australian Space Agency is still functioning, although I believe that most of its people are working remotely. The commercial side, uh, you're seeing companies continuing to function, but a lot of their work can be done remotely or that can be done online. And I think that what you're seeing here is the beginning of an interesting development where, which is highlighting the importance of fourth industrial revolution and uh, additive manufacturing in particular but also synthetic design and development, the ability to design something on a, in a synthetic environment rather than in a physical environment. And I think that's where progress is being made. But also fourth industrial revolution te- uh, technologies that the space sector is using can be more broadly applied across the whole economy. And so you would have potential there for these sorts of industries to be able to rapidly switch to manufacturing other goods that are needed at the time, you know, in this particular instance, ventilators and and that sort of thing. Yeah, right. That's a really interesting point, Malcolm. I mean, one of the things that Alex uh, Josky and I found when we were researching for the China Defence University's tracker was that uh, a major producer of uh, rocket launch uh, technology had funded research into uh, 
artificial parks in the biotechnology space. And one of the reasons for that was the technique used in actual flow pumps could be redeployed uh, into uh, a ballistic missile technology. So you're right in saying that some of these um, techniques are incredibly flexible, especially with additive uh, manufacturing and 3D printing and the like. And so um, one of the other things you you mentioned there, Malcolm, was that um, a lot of us have gone to uh, telework or remote working. And do you think you could discuss in a little bit more detail how uh, mega constellations uh, could be used to uh, help shore up connectivity in this uh, post-COVID-19 world? Yeah, look, one of the key trends that's going to emerge in the next decade is the rise of mega constellations, which essentially are large numbers of small satellites operating in very low Earth orbit to provide connectivity for the globe. So in other words, instead of paying out the national broadband network here on the, on, on the ground, we simply connect into a space-based, satellite-based um, broadband in the sky. And mega constellations enable that, uh, enable fast, assured internet access no matter where you are on the planet, whereas terrestrial networks, of course, have only limited coverage and they're considerably slower. And the mega constellations also, I think, are going to be critical in terms of enabling the internet of things, and they'll be working alongside 5G and 6G networks. So you've got that next stage in telecommunications and data revolution that's on the horizon with satellite mega constellations. Now, in the case of the current crisis, if you have that sort of technology, it makes it much easier for not only individuals but also companies to be able to work remotely and to collaborate remotely because you've got much faster, higher bandwidth satellite communications uh, and satellite-based internet than what you have at the moment. And so I think that um, mega constellations are going to become much more important because the world is going to see that we need to be able to have uh, new approaches to work environments which include uh, working remotely, distribute, distributed working environments, and mega constellations are ideal for that. Yeah, and and do you think, Malcolm, that this pandemic could push Australian defence organisations or national security agencies to having a more uh, decentralised working environment? I think so, and I think that it will encourage them uh, to focus more on the space capability sector. Uh, to uh, underpin their command and control systems than they have in the past. I mean, the Australian Defence Force is already very cognizant of the importance of space. They've become far more aware of it in recent years. They're now investing in new projects, including new satellite communications systems and new space-based uh, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance systems that will come uh, to fruition in the next decade. But I think that what COVID-19 will do will be to make the ADF recognise that they can't afford to sit back and move casually on this. And you, so you might see an acceleration of those projects or a deepening or a widening of those projects to include a mix of commercial low-end um, uh, satellite systems that can be produced locally using fourth industrial revolution and also the high-end um, systems that can be bought from overseas. So I think what you'll see with COVID-19 is a greater take-up of space within the ADF to ensure connectivity. Yeah, really uh, interesting uh, points there, Malcolm. And I thought now we could move on to something uh, space-related but not necessarily related to uh, the coronavirus uh, pandemic. That 
The Trump administration has just released an executive order about mining the moon and other celestial bodies. Do you think you could expand on what that uh, might mean for space power in, in, in general around the world? Yeah, uh, this came out two days ago. It's sort of a key document that uh, builds on the US um, decision to return to the moon under Project Artemis. And they're seeking to put uh, the first astronauts back on the moon by 2024 and establish a long-term sustained human presence on the lunar surface thereafter, building towards eventual human missions to Mars in the 2030s. And what this executive order does is reinforce the importance of mining the moon for resources, uh, in particular water resources on the lunar surface to produce rocket fuel, to produce oxygen. It provides that high-level government support for commercial lunar mining and for asteroid mining and reinforces the case that the Americans are going to go very much down that path in the 2020s and beyond, in part because they recognise that China is going to do the same thing. There's an emerging... I guess you would call it an astro-strategic space race uh, between the US and China over economic dominance of the cis-lunar environment, which is the moon and the region around the moon. And that's going to be a feature in the 2020s and beyond where you're going to see China and the US and the commercial companies that represent them. So you could have Chinese state-owned enterprises, you could have US corporations competing with one another to access and control critical resource areas on the moon Uh, And that's something that's that's really interesting. There's now a U.S. company that's just been awarded by a contract by the Department of Defense to provide Lunint, which is lunar intelligence. And this is essentially watching what is happening in cis-lunar space. So there's an early indication that the Americans are taking astro-strategic issues and astro-political issues, and particularly the competition with China on that highest ground very seriously. So, Malcolm, if as you put it, the space domain is becoming uh, a a centre for uh, strategic competition between the United States and China. Do you think that we can see the the militarisation of space and and what sort of uh, impact might that have on the conventional warfighting environment into the future? Uh, Look, it's already militarised. It's been militarised since the 60s, but I think what you will see is the transition from a militarised environment to a more weaponised, competitive environment where you're seeing both sides developing counter space capabilities, both sides developing the means to uh, you know, wage conflict in space. And I think that's a feature that's happening now, but it will accelerate over the coming decade. So, yeah, I think that space is competitive. It's contested. What we're seeing now, particularly with the moves by the US and China towards trying to grab a foothold on that high frontier of the, of the lunar environment, I think is, is a sign that Uh, they are moving down a more competitive path rather than necessarily cooperation. And Malcolm, do you think the the space domain is going to promote thinking that is different from conventional sea power theory or conventional air power theory? What sort of uh, theoretical concepts are being developed in the the space domain? Space is is very different uh, as an environment to sea, the maritime environment. But at the same time, um, I think sea power concepts can be applied. There's a debate occurring within the US between what you would call the brown water school and the blue water school. The brown water school says that really our focus should be in the, the environment between low Earth orbit 
and geostationary orbit. That's from around about 200 kilometres up uh, to about uh, 36,000 kilometres out. Uh, and that should be our focus because that's where use of space power is most directly applicable to terrestrial military operations. The Blue Water School says, no, we should be looking out to the moon and the cislunar environment because that's where the geostrategic um, or the astro-strategic competition is going to occur in coming decades. And you know the domination of space resources in that uh, blue water cis-lunar environment is something that we need to start thinking about. So you do have sea power concepts being applied there. You can have concepts related to sea power, such as um, a strategy of denial. If you can deny uh, an opponent access to key orbits and trajectories, if you, you can have blockade potentially by preventing an opponent from accessing uh, translunar injection trajectories to get stop them from getting to the moon. And of course, then using the space environment to control resources on the ground, on the surface. All of this has sort of maritime overtones. So I, I do think that space power lends itself more to sea power thinking than air power thinking, for example. Thank you, Dr. Davis. It's my pleasure, as always. Thank you. That's all for this episode here at Policy Guns and Money. Thank you for tuning in. You can tweet us at ASPI underscore org. We will be back next week. Stay safe and have a wonderful long weekend.